before we get into Psalm 96, I just want to establish a few things just to kind of make sure that we're all on the same page, make sure we all understand uh, the same kinds of things this morning, make sure that we are uh, uh, just kind of aware of some things. I stand here and I look out. Election season is, is ramping up. If you're not aware, we have an election coming up. I don't know. Maybe you've been under a rock. You have to let me know what that's like. I may want to join you sometime. But we have this election coming up, and what we see, or what I see from my vantage point, is increasingly fragmented representations within evangelical Christianity. This morning, as you sit here, I want you to understand something. That in this church, in this room, we have a variety of of political opinions. There are those in this room that, that think Hillary Clinton is the greatest thing since sliced bread, like Wonder Bread sliced bread, and they're going to vote for her, and they're super excited about that. There are other people in this room, and, and they think Hillary Clinton is terrible. She is awful. She is, she is just like a cousin to the devil, but according to their political math, they're going to vote for her. They open the word. They read it. That's what they think God would have them do. That's their conviction. That's what they're going to do this morning. There are other people in here, there are some of you that, man, you think Donald Trump is, is the best gift to the American political system since George Washington. I mean, you just, you just think he is awesome, you're just tr- still trying to figure out what he's doing with his hair, but you think Donald Trump is the best thing in the world, and, and you just can't wait to vote for him. And there are those in this room who, you just, you're, you're so exhausted and tired from pinching your nose and planning to vote for Donald Trump on November the 8th. But, but as you do political math and you think about the Supreme Court and you think about some of the other things, that's, that's kind of the conviction of your heart. That's what you plan to do. You're going to vote for Donald Trump. We have other, others in this room, and let's just kind of categorize all of them in this third party idea that you're going to vote for Evan McMullen. You're going to vote for Gary Johnson. You're going to vote for someone else because as you've kind of scheduled it out and looked at it, there's this conscience that's, that's tearing at you. And, and so what you're going to do is you're not going to vote for either one of those two people. You're not going to vote for one of the two main party candidates, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. You're going to vote for somebody else. You're going to write in somebody. And then we have those in this room who are simply just not going to vote. I mean, you're so incredibly disenfranchised with the whole deal. You're just not going to vote. I've seen... Men I respect from all across that spectrum advocating hard for each one of those candidates. And all of the, the men and women that would write offering these various opinions are, are people that we would sit beside. Man, they are a brother. They are a sister in Christ. But for whatever reason, this election season, we have kind of bought in increasingly into the idea that we are able to denigrate, speak ill of people who hold a different political opinion than ourselves. November the 9th, we've got to learn to be together. November the 9th, all the things you've said about those around you, all the ways that you've felt about the idiot who's going to vote for Trump or the moron who's going to vote for Hillary Clinton or the, or the person who's just sacrificing our grandkids and children's future by voting for a third party, all of those people who you have blasted on Facebook thought ill of, keyed their cars. Who in here has keyed a car that's got a bumper sticker? There you go. We have a police officer in the back. <laughs> Man, we've got to do church together November the 9th. 
So what I want us to look at this morning is really from this perspective, and, and this is this one-off sermon before we launch into the capital campaign, and it really is I begin to ask God, God, what would you have us as a body to know? What would you have us as a body to know and understand? And, and I thought about it from a variety of different perspectives. I could talk about what a, what a godly candidate could look like, and I could talk about what I'm going to vote as and, and, and all these things. I'm kind of running through these things, and ultimately God just kind of slapped me. He said, tell them about me. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 96. And what I want you to see in this is Psalm 96 gives us this amazing picture that God alone is worthy of all praise. And then we worship him on the basis of his reign. We don't worship him on the basis of our shifting perspective and this is kind of what we've fallen into this deal of. We're, we're voting and we're caught up into this idea of wanting to cast our vote to make the future be the best and brightest or the least bad. Christian, you have reason to rejoice today. You have reason to rejoice on November the 8th. You have reason to rejoice on November the 9th, regardless of who is elected to be the president of this great country. Amen? Amen. And that's what we're going to see today through Psalm 96. The Psalms just opens up, and, and, and look really carefully. There are five commands for us in these first three verses. The Psalms just writes and says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. What we recognize in coming into verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 96 is that, that worshiping God is a global enterprise. Worshiping God is a global enterprise, and it's something that is, is necessary for all of humanity to engage in. Look at what he said there in the, in the beginning. He said, sing to the Lord a new song. I began and I told you there would be reason to, to glorify God. There would be reason to rejoice regardless of who is elected. When we recognize the good things God has done in us, has worked in our lives, that is reason alone to rejoice. But man, some of us, we are just down in the mouth. It's like somebody kicked our brand new puppy, Right? We're just, we're just so kind of forlorn. We're so just beside ourselves in this understanding of how terrible our future seems. But what he calls us to isn't a worshiping God on the shifting sands of perspective. What he calls us to is a worshiping God because of who he is. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. Now the psalmist would use this idea over and over and again. And, and, and this isn't necessarily a song with new lyrics, a song describing some new event which has transpired in our hearts. You see, for them, he could be writing and say, sing a new song. And what he's asking them to do is to reflect back upon the exodus, to reflect back upon God's delivering them from some enemy, some kingdom, some oppressor. And so for us in our lives, you may look at it and say, I have no good reason to sing. If you know the Lord Jesus, if you have submitted yourself to him, if he has made you new, then each and every day, each and every moment, friend, you have reason to sing. 
Jeremiah, writing in the book of Lamentations, penned these words to us in chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. He said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And then he comments on that. He says, God, great is your faithfulness. Each morning you wake up and draw breath is another opportunity for you to worship and glorify God. Each and every morning you wake up, you are faced with a choice. Will I glorify God or bemoan my circumstances? Christian, what God calls you to is faithfulness and worship of him. Sing, sing to the Lord a new song. Now look at this secondly. He says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Now we, we recognize, you look around, and there are, there are men and women in this room, men and women in this community, men and women across the face of this earth that do not worship God. They don't sing praise to his name. Is this a true statement? Everybody say yes. We recognize then what he's calling us to in this is pointing at this discrepancy. So the reality of of what should be is that all of humanity should cry out in praise to God. But the sad true fact is that so many caught up in our families, on our street, in our lives, in our community, and across the face of this earth do not worship God. They don't sing praises to him. God is so incredibly great that his greatness deserves the praise and adoration of all of humanity. And he calls you and I to engage in this process. Look what he says here. He says, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation day to day. How are we producing worshipers? We produce worshipers of our great God by communicating his fantastic attributes to everybody we come into contact with. Quite simply, we evangelize. Quite simply, we evangelize. He calls us in there, and he describes, he says, this is what it looks like. All the peoples of the earth should praise my name. They should sing to me. And this is what happens day to day. He calls you and I to go out and to tell of his salvation. His salvation does not diminish in luster. It does not diminish in how amazing it is. And so he calls us, he said, there should be no end to the communication Uh, from our part on God's salvation. Verse 3, he goes on, he says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. And so some of you might say, you say, my life is terrible. It's awful. It's the worst thing in the world. What does he say in this? Tell of his salvation day to day. His His wondrous works to all the nations. If God has wrought salvation in your heart, If he has moved you from darkness to light, from death to life, if these things are true of you, if you have confessed your sins to God, if you have turned your heart back to him, if he has made your dead heart beat alive, then each and every day you have something worth declaring. Each and every day you have something worth declaring. Each and every day you have... This, this overarching cosmic narrative of God that is able to produce change in lost humanity and move people from, from one of apathy to worshiper, one of being disinterested to being a child of the king, one from this place of darkness and woe to one of redemption and security, friend, today, Christian. Tell. 
We see this really simple meeting out of imperatives, of command form verbs in here. He says, sing, 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 tell, declare. Does this sound like shutting your mouth and being quiet? None of us could read this and walk away and say anything other than God is calling us to the active engagement, engaging men and women everywhere that we come into contact with about his goodness and his grace. So we find all these people engaged and, 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 and really worried about how things are going to be November the 9th, how things are going to be after the new president takes office, how things are going to work out, and how we can hedge our bets and all these things. We are not caught up in hand-wringing and nervousness. Why? Because we recognize that our God is not worshipped according to the shifting sands of our perspective, that he is worshipped according to his reign and glory, which knows no end. Amen? He goes on and he begins to give us reasons why we are to sing, 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 tell and declare. Why we are to sing our praises to this great God. Look at the first one. He says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Can I tell you this morning that if you, if you see no praise in your life, that it is likely an indication that you don't think this God is very great. He says, this God is great and greatly to be praised. We tend to do things in accordance with, with our internal belief set. We tend to respond and engage in action according to what we feel internally. This week I had to take our dog to the vet. I, I can just tell you going into this, I hate cats. Like Some of you have cats, I tolerate that in you. Uh, but I'm, I'm not a person that likes cats at all. And, and what my wife didn't tell me is that this vet's office is like Catpalooza. I mean, it is... There are cats everywhere. They got cats in cages. They got cats on shelves. They got cats roaming the waiting room. It smells like a kitty litter box, but I saw none. I'm pretty sure I sat in. Anyway. And so I'm there, and, and I've got my dog, and, 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 and he's a dog, and, and I'm thinking, okay, it's just you and me, buddy, against the world. All we see is women and cats. And so we go in there, and, and I've got this internal disposition that tells me I hate cats. The only good cat is a dead cat or a barn cat. And so I've got no need for any of these. And, and, and what happens? Cats know. They know you don't like them. So this stupid cat begins to climb up on the counter and make its way to me, and I'm backing up, and I'm, I'm looking, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to sit here on the corner so I can see all the exits and see this cat. And so I'm sitting down here, and this cat, it, it jumps unnaturally off the counter and onto the floor, and it begins to make its way over to me. Internally, I hate cats. I'm out on the middle of a road, and this cat comes to me, and I'm, get away from me, cat! Nah! I'm, you know, whatever, and kicking and, and screaming and cussing and all this stuff, trying to get this cat away from me, shooting with a big stick. But I'm in this office filled with women and those who love cats and lots of cats. And so what am I doing? It's okay. Come on now. Come on now. Go away. Go away. I'm thinking, why can't my dog act like a real dog? What's, what's going on? And so I'm, I got the dog, and we're, we're walking away, and I'm thinking, what is wrong? What is wrong with that cat? And the cats still follow me. And so I'm fighting my internal disposition. I'm fighting everything in me. This is not so different from what we do. This is not so different from what we do. Christian, you would likely say that you believe God is great. You believe he is greatly to be praised. But we find ourselves in situations where it's uncomfortable to respond that way. 
So when somebody brings up the election, or they bring up something difficult, or they, or they bring up how ridiculous it is that you believe that, that God's son came to the earth, that he died and was raised again, what do you do? You're like me, that idiot in the, in the office, just kind of quietly pushing the cat away. Get away, get away. Looking for opportunities to, to not have difficult conversations. But what we read in this is the greatness of our God demands that even in the face of discomfort, still we engage in worshiping him. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. What he says next, he says, he is to be feared above all gods. Why? For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. We find people worship any number of things now. We find people that they have a different take on on theology or understanding or just religion, and so they, they worship a different God. They worship a God by a different name. But we find uh, more commonly anymore that people worship the God of work. They worship the God of health. They worship the God of vibrance. They worship the God of intellect. They worship the God of money. And so they find themselves engaged in this pursuit, worshiping all these various gods. What we see from this perspective of the Psalms is he writes and he says, all these other gods are worthless. So he compares in some sense, he says, our God is to be revered, respected, and feared. That when we properly understand who God is, that it produces fear and trepidation in us. Because we're not able to approach him flippantly. We're not able to approach him without a sense of earnestness, humbling, bowing down before him. But these other gods, they are worthless. The word that the Hebrew author uses here communicates the idea of nothing. And so it's rendered here in the ESV as being worthless idols. But what he's trying to communicate to us is that they are, in fact, nothings. They are non-entities. There is no real vibrancy or substance to them. And we live amongst a group of people who worship. They worship all kinds of different things. They worship sports. They worship politics. They worship their spouse. They worship their children. They worship their car, their home, their job. But your heart, your heart, Christian, has been changed. It's been made alive. Your heart has been able to have its devotion, its affection set on the one true God. And from this perspective, we recognize that God calls, that he allows, that he has placed you amongst a people who worship idols. And he says to you, will you go and engage them where they are, recognizing that you too used to worship idols? Used to worship the approval of your parents, used to worship the approval of your spouse. You used to worship the future success of your children. You used to worship their obedience in the grocery store. Please don't touch that. Please don't yell. You know, I can't spank you in public. Never say that. Never let them know that. What he calls us to is a radical engagement of those who are worshiping anything outside of God. He says, all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But look at this contrast here. They are worthless, but look what he did. He made the heavens. Now, he's obviously using this as an extension just to describe one facet of his creative endeavor. God created everything we're able to see, everything we're able to observe, and all those things we're not able to see or observe by the naked eye. The Lord made the heavens, and summarily he describes it and says, splendor and majesty 
or before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And look what he does in 7 through 9. begins to open this back up. And so we see what we're supposed to do in 1 through 3, why we're supposed to do it in 4 through 6. And then he comes back at it with a slightly different perspective of all the things we're supposed to give back to God in 4 through 9. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. What we are supposed to do is humble ourselves before God and make this this awesome recognition that he alone, he alone has strength and glory. That he alone has these things. But this necessarily means that we don't have anything, that, that all glory doesn't redound to us, that it redounds to God, that it goes to him, that it belongs to him, and all strength that we seem to have, pretend to have, is ultimately weakness. And as scripture tells us, it is only when we are weak that he is able to make us strong. If you seek to live out the remainder of your life in your strength, you will find it to be an abject failure. If you seek to live out and to engage in all the difficulties of this life in your own strength, you will find it to be incredibly difficult, overwhelming. We have to recognize that all strength belongs to God, that all glory belongs to him. And in that, he surrounds us with people, a church, a life group, a fellowship, friends and family all infused by the power of his spirit. And all these people are gathering around and they are pouring into us. And the strength of God is met out in our lives by the undergirding intercession of all those people around us. God calls us to radically invest ourselves in the lives of those people around us. And in so doing, we are strengthened. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Look what he says here. Bring an offering into his courts. In some sense, I was having a conversation earlier this week. In some sense, I really think that many of us, our hearts would say, we really prefer an Old Testament understanding of sacrifice, of giving to God, because it was easier. It was easier. You knew what you had to give. You knew how the schedule broke out. There was never any of this internal wrestling and wrangling. Have I given enough? What does that look like? Have I given too much? Because I don't want to do that either. Nobody likes to show off. Nobody likes a braggart. But in terms of the New Testament, as it comes into this, we recognize everything you have belongs to God. Maybe nobody's ever told you this before. Your health belongs to God. Your family belongs to God. Your talents belong to God. Your time belongs to God. And your finances, they belong to God. Everything you have or will have, Christian, belongs to God. The sooner you understand this, the better off you'll be. Recognize that for many of us, though, we we like the aspect of the Old Testament system of I've just got to bring in this percentage, and you've kind of overly simplified it. It's just this 10%. It's just of my money. And it's really this kind of after tax, after all these other things, and after, you know, paying child support, and after all these things, and after, well, you know, after the vacation, because God knew I really needed that. And so you kind of met all these things down at the end of the year, like, God, here's $10. Don't spend it all at one time. It's a lot, really. And you look at this, and, and then you're, your heart begins to kind of move in this internal wrangling. We're people that want exceptions. We're a people that want 
really just somebody to tell us what to do, but we get into this and we recognize in Romans 12, 1, that our sacrifices before God, that our offerings before God are anything but cut and dry, anything but rote, anything but unengaged. Look what he writes. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which is your spiritual worship. Christian, we recognize that when you come into relationship with God, that everything you have belongs to him. And so questions of of giving to the church and its regular programs or questions of giving to the poor or questions of giving to missions or questions of giving to capital campaigns, all of these things aren't primarily worked out in our budget spreadsheet. They're not primarily, primarily this look and saying this is what my intake is and this is what my outflow is. They are a spiritual response to what we have an understanding that God is calling us to submit. It's not this minimum, but it is us coming before God and, God say, and us saying, God, everything is yours. How much of it do you want right now? This is terrifying. This is just flat terrible. I'm surprised more of you aren't getting up and walking out the back. I mean, we already lost two or three this morning. But really, look, it's this understanding that everything you have belongs to him. Your wife might not know. Your husband may not know. And our family, Valerie, keeps the books. I have no idea what it looks like month to month. I'm just amazed that when I swipe the card, the guy says it's approved. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I, I totally wanted a gallon of milk. We come into this with this Christian understanding that we are called to render something to God and our worship of God. Our worship of God is in accordance with how great He is. What does the gifts, what do the gifts that you offer to God say about what you think about Him? Think about that for a second. And I can tell you for a long time in my life, I gave to God out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of this is what I was always told that I was supposed to do, but I never once stopped to consider that my gifts to God, my time, talents, money, were meant to be a reflection of how I felt about him. And when I began to understand that, I recognized that I really, if somebody was looking at the things I gave, the time that I spent, how I uh, gave all of my things back to God, the only response that they could give at looking at those things that I gave to God would be, he doesn't really love God very much. He just feels guilty to the point where he needs to give something. And this is a journey God took me on changing my heart, stripping me of a desire to be rich, stripping me of a desire to selfishly use my time. We're gonna go on a journey for the next month or so, and it's gonna be an incredibly difficult journey for many of us. Because you don't realize it yet, but what you've actually done is set up and, and you've created that this now, everything you have now, is your kingdom. And what God's going to do, and I really pray this happens for you, is that God will strip that from you. Not so that you'll give more money to a capital campaign, but so that you will give everything you have over to God and finally find out what it is 
to be a true worshiper. He says, come into the sanctuary, give to me an offering. The amazing thing about this is he doesn't have us come in dressed in our own righteousness, dressed in our own goodness. He says it is the splendor, it's the splendor of holiness that we are adorned with. And and really what he's looking at in in verse 9 there is what we are wearing. Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah writes about what we are wearing, what we have on, and if when we come in and we worship God. And we're not arrayed in fine linen. We're not arrayed in our own goodness. Look at what we're wearing. Isaiah 61.10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, God has clothed you in salvation and righteousness. This, this is how we get to worship him. Because he has, he has covered us in his salvation and his righteousness. Now look what he goes on to say about our God in verses 10 through 13. He says, say among the nation the Lord reigns. Yes, the The world is established, it shall never be moved, and he will judge the people with equity. When we come into this, we recognize that this description of God, this call to sing, 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 tell, and declare, these calls of the reasons of why we worship God ultimately boil down to we worship him because his reign is uninterrupted. His reign is sure and steady. The reason he is able to be worshiped is because his reign is not in turmoil. Come November the 9th, God's reign does not change. Come January 1, God's reign does not change. Come whether we have despot, autocrat, whether we have the most godly president or the most hedonistic person leading this country, God's reign is not shifted. And on the basis of this, we are called and enjoined and asked if we would come and worship him on the basis of the reality and and unshakableness of his reign. It says, of his reign, the world is established and it shall never be moved. We recognize that God is coming to judge and he will judge the peoples with equity. Look what happens here. Based upon the coming of this judge, all these inanimate objects call out in praise to him. He says, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. Why? Before the Lord, for he comes. The reason we worship God is because he is coming. He is coming to display his rule and reign. That thing which exists in the supernatural, that thing which exists because of his decree is coming, and it's coming here. Will you be a worshiper of Jesus? Will you be a worshiper of the one true God whose reign is coming? Or will you have your worship highly impacted by the shifting perspective of your own experience? When you watch the news, there is reason to despair. You read the paper, there's reason to despair. You talk to your idiot cousin Bob, there is reason to despair. I don't have a cousin Bob, I feel very comfortable saying that. 
But when you read scripture and you see how good and how great this God is and you recognize that he is coming, that his rule cannot be shifted, that his coming cannot be interrupted, you recognize he's coming to judge us with equity. There is absolutely, there is absolutely cause to have our mourning, our weeping, our despair overcome with great joy. We worship the Lord for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Clearly this psalm is a, a psalm, a, a messianic psalm. Isaiah. Isaiah in some sense was tapping into this psalm when he wrote in chapter 11. He says, There shall come up from the shoot, come forth the shoot, the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall be upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord and he shall judge by what his eyes see. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and kill with the breath of his lips and he shall kill the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins it's time the people of the book begin to worship God on the basis of what he's doing and what he's going to do and stop letting our worship or our our response to God be impacted by those things we see in the media to recognize regardless of who you are planning to vote for November the 8th God's rule and God's reign is not impacted would you pray with me God we are so thankful for your goodness to us Father I am thankful that we Worship you in spirit and in truth, according to John 4. And God, I'm thankful that we worship a God whose rule and reign is not impacted. It is not adversely affected by how we cast our ballots on November the 8th. God, would you help us to be kind and loving to those who have different political perspectives than we do? God, would you help us all to place ourselves into full submission to Jesus? Your son who came, who took away the sting of sin and death from us, who took on our punishment onto himself. Who died upon the cross and was raised from the dead three days later. And it is in Jesus we find that we are able to love those who disagree with us. And it is in Jesus that we are made alive and able to call others to be made alive as well. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and pray that you would continue to apply the truth of your word by your spirit to our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.